Faculty beginning their teaching careers often rely on the teaching methods that were inflicted on them when they were students. These practices are not always consistent with evidence on how we learn. In this episode, we examine how one department is transforming its instructional practices through the use of professional development opportunities provided by its national professional organization. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, we are joined by four assistant professors from the Department of Mathematics at SUNY Oswego. Our guests are Sarah Hanish, Rafika Churchill, Jessalyn Bolkema, and I'm Zoe Misowicz. Welcome, everyone. Our teas today are I am having Earl Grey. I just poured myself a cup of lemon ginger. I'm not having any tea today. I'm not much of a tea drinker. I'm not having any tea today either. I just haven't unpacked to that point yet. And I have English afternoon. And I have Bing Cherry Black Tea. So we invited you here to talk about Project Next, which is something people in our math department have been involved with. Could you tell us what Project Next is? So Project Next stands for New Experiences in Teaching. It's a program that is sponsored by the Math Association of America that brings new mathematics faculty. So you have to be in your first or second year of a full-time job but they bring these new mathematicians in from all over the country to teach them about active learning. How did your involvement or the department's involvement with Project Next get started? I learned about it as a graduate student and was highly encouraged by a lot of people to apply. And so I kind of brought it into the department by saying, your department here, will you pay for this? And since then, in part because of my starting it, we've encouraged everyone we've hired to apply. And as a result, there's now five members of the department that have either completed or are still in Project X. Yeah, I will echo that experience. It was something that I was aware of as a graduate student, in part because some of my mentors had gone through Project Next. It's now 25 years old, just celebrated 25 years. And so for me, it was something that I knew I was interested in. And in fact, when I visited Oswego for a campus interview, and the department said, oh, yeah, we have Project Next fellows on the faculty, and we would be happy to support you in that. That was a really exciting and encouraging thing about the department. For me, actually, I didn't heard about that before. But when I got the job offer, it came with that. I said, yeah, sure. I was just hired this past year, and so I'm doing Project Next. But I think I can already see the effects that it has had. It was a program I already knew about, I really wanted to participate in. So as I was going through the hiring process, one of the first things I would ask the chair at a place was, would you support an application for Project Next? Because it does require a bit of funding. And so seeing that there were already multiple Project Next fellows in this department was also a good sign for the department as a whole when I was thinking of what sort of department I'd want to be at. And so I think it's just showing that it's already been recruiting people who are interested in it already at this point. I was just going to clarify a little bit about 
how the funding for it works. There's actually no fee to participate in Project Next. The way it's organized is that you attend special sessions at three of the national conferences in mathematics. So you attend two math fests in the summer and then the joint math meetings, which is in January. And so these are big nationwide meetings in mathematics. And so the idea is that you're going for some special sessions during the meetings, and then your first year you go for a couple days pre-conference for the really heavy-duty workshop. So the financial commitment from a department is just the funding to go to those three conferences. You mentioned active learning. Can you talk a little bit more about how those workshops and things are structured? There were a lot of workshops about active learning and just using evidence-based pedagogy. So saying not only active learning is good, but we have evidence to support it. And here are some of the things that you could do in terms of active learning. And all the sessions obviously are structured with that in mind. So we're not just sitting there listening passively to someone tell us about active learning, but they really make sure you're doing something, whether it's a fun little game like building a marshmallow tower or some other interactive activity in each session. The sessions aren't only about active learning. There's a lot about inclusivity and diversifying the profession. So a lot of sessions on that, or maybe I just chose sessions on that, but there's also a whole professional development stream. So there's stuff about how to get started in your career in terms of grants and so on. It's really a lot of everything in there. It's categorized, like if you're interested on the tactile learning, so are you interested on the group work? Are you interested on some other, you know, inquiry pairs and mastery grading and so forth? So depending on your interest, actually, they give more opportunity to listen, go talk with people and have a conversation what they had, what they tried and what failed and what succeed, which is like a really nice thing for us as a beginner to see what people have gone through and what I should expect and so forth. Actually, I was interested about the whole program. So they do some three-hour breakout workshops where you get to go based on what your interests are. So I did one that was focused on teaching future educators because that's my background. But I doubt any of these other ladies chose that same session because that's not their expertise and not what their job is going to be about fundamentally. I will add, I attended two workshops that stand out to me in retrospect, one on making active learning intentionally inclusive. That was all about inclusive pedagogies and ways to incorporate group work in the classroom in a way that benefits all students and allows all students to participate fully. I also did a longer breakout workshop that was building a toolkit for student-centered assessment that was all about learning objectives and exam structures from a more experienced instructor. And then there are also facets of Project Next that extend well beyond the physically meeting in person. So as Rosika mentioned, there are lots of ways that you can navigate the workshop according to themes that are of particular interest to you. So if tactile learning or kinetic activities are of interest or you're really focused on educating future teachers or whatever that might be, you might be encouraged to declare a goal for yourself in your first year related to one of those areas of interest. And then we've got little email exchanges that go on for people who've declared interest in one of those goals. Like this email list is all about mastery-based grading. Check in when you've tried something, check in with your questions. So there's a little bit of accountability built into that structure that these people know what you're trying to do and they're going to check in with you on it. But then just the larger structure of email lists is that 
you have this cohort of other new instructors who will fire off questions like, oh, I'm teaching this class next semester I've never taught before. What textbook might I use? Or I had this really strange interaction in my classroom and I'm not sure how to handle it. Or I think this part of my syllabus is just crashing and burning. Help. Has anyone been here before? And so you have this sort of communal resource and this community experience of brainstorming and problem solving together. And included in that, they assign each of us a mentor. So a more experienced instructor that's a mentor is assigned to each person in the program currently. And it's always someone that is outside of your department. In fact, they will not allow anyone to be a mentor who has a fellow in their department. So as long as we keep having fellows, we won't have any mentors here. But what's nice is when you do send emails out on that list of, I'm trying this and it's not going well, help. You do get responses from your peers, but you also see responses from all of the mentors for that cohort, which I think is also valuable because sometimes they have a little more experience than your actual cohort. We have a group that people who are interested in the inquiry base or tactile work, they have their own little Zoom conversation whenever they have time together. You get to know different schools, what they're doing and, you know, share your experience. Would you all like to talk a little bit about how Project Next has influenced your own teaching? For me, actually, I was really interested in the tactile experience from this Project Next. So I decided to do some activities this semester, starting as a beginner and also some group work. And also something that not exactly that I'm getting from the project next, but it's like, I will say, part of the SUNY Oswego reading group that I was so interested on the book that we are reading. And I decided to give a couple of pages for the students every week to read. And I assigned them 5% for their final grade that they have to read and write a half a page to one page report for me and tell me what they think. Do they think like it's feasible for them to change and try and do the things and that nature? So far, it's really going well. And I have good comments from students saying that you are opening up different ways of thinking, that we were stuck and we were complaining on everything, but we are now having, you know, in a broader way of looking at the things about growth mindset and so forth. So I was speaking here and there like chapters from some interesting books. So that's what my experience so far this semester as a beginner. I think for me, it just gave me a lot more lesson plans and ideas to draw from. I already had a pretty active approach to my teaching, but it just opened a broader view of what kinds of things could work well, especially some of the more tactile things available that can be helpful for helping students to learn. Within my own teaching, I think it's been really easy or natural to draw on resources from Project Next in setting up my class or setting up lessons. When I taught Calc 1 on day one, we made zip lines out of ribbon and keychains and measured average velocities. And it was fun and it was memorable and it got students working in groups and they reported at the end of the semester, hey, remember when we did zip lines? That was fun. And I 100% would not have pushed myself to do something that involved or non-standard, I'll say, without the context of Project Next and saying, oh, just try one new thing each semester. I completely overhauled a Calc 2 class to be entirely mastery-based grading. 
in response to some of my own frustrations with how I had been setting up my class. And Project Next supplied a whole lot of resources, a whole lot of people, a whole lot of information and motivation to try something like that, which I think was helpful. As far as department culture goes, I think the fact that we've had this many Project Next fellows and continue to have Project Next fellows gives us a shared language to talk about teaching, some shared frame of reference on, oh yeah, you know this person who tried this technique, or have you heard anything about, oh hey, this came through on my Project Next list that I think has encouraged just our conversations about teaching and being intentional in how we're structuring our classes or how we're handling things. I'm experimenting with mastery-based grading this semester because of the information you and John got from your experience in Project Next. And so your experiments with it last year have led me to experiment with it this year. So it definitely has changed just how we even hear about new things to try. That's delightful. I appreciate that it's trickling around. It is trickling for sure. So I'd say it's still obviously fairly early. We're only one month into my first semester after going through the first part of Project Next. But I'd say a lot of it has been both an affirmation of things that I have been doing. And also it's sort of given me the confidence to do the things that I was doing even more fully and to advocate for these approaches, even though I am brand new in this department. So I'm not afraid to send to the whole department email list, like we need to be more positive toward our students and not say that it's all their fault if they're struggling. We need to take responsibility for that. Or just to try things that may or may not work well. For example, I'm doing mastery-based grading just of the homework in my general education math course. And I'm using an online system that it turns out is not that great for mastery-based grading of that course, even though I've used it for other courses. Students, I think, still benefit from it, but it's not quite as effective as I might have hoped. But I'm just willing to try these things, willing to speak up about things. So those are the main impacts in my courses. Could you tell us a little bit about how you've implemented mastery learning? I think we've all done it a little different. Why don't you start, Zoe, since you were just talking about it? I've done it only in the homework, so not in their exams. So the homework is done online. It's 15% of their grade. And so for each little subtopic, they have to do a little quiz. It's five questions, three medium, one easy, one hard. And they need to get at least 90% on it. And they can try as many times as they want, but they do have to keep trying. And so in courses like college algebra is the one that's most similar to where I've done it before. The material all builds on itself and it divides nicely into little components. And there I'd say it's going well. The students complain about it at the beginning, but already after I asked them to reflect on their first test performance, a lot of people said, oh, it's actually really helpful that I had to go back and keep learning these things until I fully understood them. Whereas in the first couple of weeks, there's always a bit of pushback about why do we need to get 90% on this? It's too hard to get 90%. Couldn't it be lower? And then once the results come in, they see it's worthwhile. The other course I'm doing is similar, the gen ed math course. It's also their online homework, 15% of their grade, but that textbook just doesn't break down the material into as nice sections and the questions are longer and the grading of the online system is pickier. So that one has some issues, but the same basic idea. Are you using publisher-provided questions then and tools? Yeah, publisher-provided questions and tools. Are you allowing unlimited attempts or is it a limit on the number of attempts? Yeah, unlimited attempts. And flexible deadlines, too. So I do say they need to achieve a certain amount before each of the tests. But the idea is that if you haven't yet mastered something, you can still go back and do it several weeks later as you keep practicing the material. We keep building on it. So 
it's not that you have just one chance and you're done. The goal is to get them all to understand it fully by the end of the semester. My approach to mastery-based grading and my first implementation was to go totally off the deep end and just structure the whole class with a mastery-based grading scheme. So what this meant was that I did away with midterm exams. Everything was broken down into learning objectives roughly correlated to the sections that we were intending to cover in the textbook. And the primary mode of assessment was quizzes. So my students had quizzes that they could retake as many times as they needed to. And each quiz had three questions. And I wrote problem banks of many, many questions for each quiz. And in order to earn an A at the end of the semester, the expectation was something like, oh, you need 18 of your quizzes to be three out of three and the rest to be two out of three. So it was not a points accumulation scheme. It was just quizzes and repeated quizzes. They also had online homework through web work, and that was unlimited attempts. There were deadlines, and they just needed to, there's sort of a threshold percentage associated to an A or a B or a C. And then I had a few more other activities and elements going on, but primarily the structure involved these mastery quizzes. And I owe a great deal in the structure of this class to Laura Tallman from James Madison University who shared a lot about how she structured her class that way. And so I sort of borrowed and adapted from her setup for my experiment. So my class is pretty similar to Jess's. The main difference is I'm doing it in a proof-based course. So it's fewer questions. She had three questions per objective. I have one because they're a little bit longer questions. The only exam in my class this semester is the final, and that's only because I'm required to have some common questions on a final exam. So I had to have a final exam instead I'm doing weekly quizzes. Each week we add one to two new objectives. There's about 20 for the entire semester. So our first week we had two questions on the quiz. The second week we had four questions on the quiz, but questions one and two were the same objective as one and two from the first quiz. So the questions are just going to grow cumulatively. So our last quiz will have about 20 questions on it. Although I did tell them once everyone has mastered a question, it's just going to say mastered. <laughs> There's going to be no new question writing. And at some point, I'm going to recycle some of the early ones. You're building in some interleave practice and space practice. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that once they have mastered a question, they no longer have to do it again. They'll have the questions for practicing and for getting ready for the final. In addition to these mastery quizzes, I'm having them write a portfolio which is going to have a little bit more of that interleaving practice and making sure that at the end of the semester, they still remember how to write some of these early proofs. And it's also to focus on the writing aspect. So to help make sure they're really using the language precisely. Sometimes with a quiz, when it's timed, you're a little more flexible, but I want to make sure that they have that precision of language down by the end of the semester. So I'm sort of balancing those two aspects of it that way. They have unlimited attempts and air quotes restricted by what there's 12 times I could quiz during the semester, 13 for something. So restricted to if they need to do number one all semester long, they can have all semester to do it, but we are eventually going to run out of time. So for me, I haven't tried the mastery based grading yet, maybe in future. Are there any other new techniques that any of you have used in your classes? I've done a lot of experiments with this idea of embodied cognition. 
where you actually have students sort of using their bodies to experience things mathematically. One way that we did this with my pre-service elementary school teachers, I give them a bunch of clothesline and I have them make a circle. So you might think, okay, no big deal. But what happens is it's not good enough until it's a perfect circle. Part of this is to elicit the definition of a circle because to non-mathematicians, I'm going to pick on you for just a moment, Rebecca, how would you define a circle? One continuous line that's in a loop. So a lot of times they come up (laughs) with something like that. Well, how does that distinguish, though, a circle from an oval? So it's not really a precise definition of a circle, right? Where the precise definition is being it's all of the points that are a fixed distance from the center. But what happens is by forcing them to make their circle better and better and better and better, they actually all know that's the definition of a circle. Maybe they don't remember it, but they know that there's this radius thing involved. And so by not allowing them to sort of quit until they actually are in a perfect circle, the only way to do that is you have someone stand in the center and you take another piece of clothesline to measure your radius and you move everyone in and out as appropriate. So that activity of physically making the circle and by having to have that person in the center and that radius gets them to say the definition of a circle properly, first of all but they get to experience it in a way that they don't get to otherwise. And that's an activity that I never would have thought of without going to Tensia Soto's session at my first Project Next meetings. Well, it's certainly (laughs) safer than giving them all compasses with sharp points where they stab each other, which was how people used to do it. We still do compass and straight edge constructions and geometry. But again, that doesn't actually help you really understand what the definition is. I think doing this physically actually helps them understand why a compass works. I know that sounds silly, but it really helps make those kind of connections. I have another activity where we take clothesline and I make a triangle on the ground and I make them walk the interior angles of the triangle and you spin 180 degrees. And again, it helps them experience that the sum of the internal angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. And again, that's something that the first time I did it, it was baffling because first of all, it's hard to turn the interior angles. Your instinct is to turn the exterior ones, but you end up backwards. From a geometry standpoint, it makes sense, but somehow that physical aspect just really changes things. It makes for a much more memorable experience where they're seeing things from a different perspective. And I think that's really useful. I agree. That's why I do it. Does anyone else want to chime in about how having so many fellows from Project Next has influenced the larger department? Because you're not just five people in your department, you're how many? There's 14 of us tenure slash tenure track now. I do think it's changing the way some things are done. It's slow going. I think everyone would concur with that. (laughs) Jessalyn Smirk is definitely confirming that. Slow going. Some of us would like change to happen faster, but I do think change is happening. I think there's a lot of respect from our colleagues that we are trying new things. I think a lot of them have a, you can do what you want, but don't make me change yet. But I think we're starting to get them a little bit too. If your students are more successful, that often convinces people. And sometimes when students say, I did this in this other class and it was really helpful, that's often really persuasive to other faculty. But it's convenient that you had so many people all come in at once because that's not typical in most departments that have such a large cohort in a short period of time. We have had a lot of retirements, one right back on top of each other. So we have had an influx of young faculty in our department, which that alone to have so many in this program as well, definitely. It really helps to have models of ways that you can do things because if you didn't learn using these methods or you didn't have exposure to that as a student, you have no way of knowing how those really play out unless you have examples. So it sounds like Project Next played that role for you, but then you are playing that role for other faculty in your department. 
thinking about department culture more broadly, not just among discussions and relationships among faculty, but in terms of the student experience and the engagement that we're having from our majors and the sort of activities that we're involving them in. I think there has been a Project Next influence there as well. Sarah, you and John started a Putnam competition before I came even, and a lot of other conversations and gatherings have come out of that. Like we're getting together with our majors and talking about preparing them for graduate school, if that's something they want to do. The math club or other organizations have taken on a different role in the department. And I think a lot of that comes out of some of the ideas in Project Next, like hearing about how another department celebrates their students participating in something like the Putnam competition. But it also comes out of the relationships you build in an active learning classroom and the way that we connect with students when we are trying new things and we're being honest with them and saying, hey, I'm trying something new and I'm going to want your feedback. The community that you build in a classroom flows into the community that we support and foster as a department. So it's a bit hard for me to talk about departmental culture change in the one month that I've been there, not having seen it before I did Project Next. I can certainly talk about how the department seems different from other departments, just in the willingness to embrace new ideas. And there's also a sense that these ideas are just supported, even if we haven't had an explicit conversation. I know that there will be support for trying something new that was suggested in Project Next. And it seems when it comes time to make policies that we have almost a majority just of Project Next people. Obviously, we need a couple more people, but there are other people who haven't participated in the program who would still support these sorts of initiatives. Knowing that that base of similar views is there makes a big difference in what sorts of ideas we would even suggest or consider. I think a lot of our Project Next fellows have also been very active with doing undergraduate research with students. I think even like talking to colleagues, for me, like I have a personal experience because my husband is also a mathematician and teacher at SUNY Oswego. I learned something new, I share with him, of course. He's not a Project Next fellow, but... So it sounds like the program's working really well. You're all really excited about it. It sounds like it's engaging all of you. So glad that you were able to share it with us. The MAA has definitely done a lot to support improving teaching in mathematics, and I do think it is a program that other disciplines could look at and possibly model. I will say they have put a lot of money and a lot of investment into making this a success. It is well run and has been well funded, which is a testament to how important professional organization views it. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, one thing that's next is we're trying to get one of our other new faculty. His application was rejected last year. We're also hiring two people, hopefully this year. So possibly trying to send them next year as well. Another immediate thing that's next is that our two current next fellows will be attending the joint math meetings in January and maybe organizing some project next sessions or at least attending some sessions. I'll be helping to organize a session on getting started in math education research, which I was made part of because I said it was something I wanted to do, but it's not something I have any background in. So I'm finding it a bit of a challenge to assist in this organizational process. But I also, possibly for Math Fest next summer, helping organize a session on reducing math anxiety, which is something that a previous Next fellow who I follow on Twitter helped organize this session. And so having attended Next, I think gave me the confidence to respond on Twitter to this senior mathematician and say, oh, yes, I'm interested in this topic. And so that will come later. And that's something I actually feel like I could contribute to in a meaningful way, unlike math education. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. 
It's our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Brittany Jones and Kiara Montero.